I'm Pete Pedro Hoffmeister, and this is the Boring is a Swear Word podcast. I'm recording this episode right after the Kyle Rittenhouse acquittal, and I don't even know where to start. There are so many issues here. With something this complex, it would be easy to say, I don't know. But then again, I know I can't stay silent. It would be wrong of me to stay silent when something this big, something this important is happening in our country. Or you might be on the other side, and you're looking at this event and you are thinking, really? Why are these four people so important? Why do these four random people in Wisconsin matter very much? And in a way, you're right. Rittenhouse and the three people he shot are just pawns. But they're pawns in an enormous game. And that is why all this matters so much. So how do I comment on something big and complex without rambling on? I don't want to do that to my listeners, so I sat down, wrote out my thoughts, organized them for a couple of days, revised, and cut them way down. And here goes. A short episode of the Boring is a Swear Word podcast. The first thing, the big thing, the overall takeaway, is that the Rittenhouse acquittal points to much, much bigger problems. Systemic issues in our country. A country born of the violence of a revolution. A country held together by an incredibly bloody civil war. A country divided politically and currently obsessed with all types of violence. For example, there are more guns per capita in our country than any other country in the world. And we are the only country in the world to have 120 plus civilian guns per 100 people. So that's not military or police guns outnumbering our population. We're just talking about civilian guns outnumbering our population. According to Forbes magazine, America's gun business is a $28 billion industry. Also, before we get too far, to be clear, I understand hunting rights and gun ownership. And if a person already eats meat, it makes perfect sense that they would have a weapon to harvest an animal in the backcountry, especially to feed their family. To me, that makes more sense than buying cheap, poorly raised meat and meat products from the local Safeway or Ralph's or Albertson's grocery store. But clearly, nothing about the Rittenhouse murder trial has anything to do with hunting rights or gun ownership rights for the purpose of hunting, even though hunting law technicalities in Wisconsin cleared Rittenhouse of the possession of a deadly weapon by a person under the age of 18 charge. These are also facts according to trial testimonies. Rittenhouse drove himself across state lines, picked up a loaded assault rifle that he wasn't old enough to buy, then shot three people, killing two of them with that very assault rifle that he wasn't old enough to buy, and he apparently, according to a Wisconsin jury, committed zero crimes in doing all of those things. Zero. 
Writing that last paragraph made me pause. If that last paragraph is true, if he can travel to another state, shoot three people with an assault rifle he's not allowed to buy, and if that is committing zero crimes, then we clearly have systemic issues in this country. So let's start to look at them. The National Rifle Association, the NRA, contributed more than $30 million to the Donald Trump campaign for president in 2016 to protect assault rifle and pistol purchasing laws and to ensure gun rights were expanded, not contracted. You can look that up yourself. Check multiple sites. That is a fact. The NRA wanted gun rights expanded in 2016 as if we didn't already have systemic gun issues in our country before 2016. But preceding that by four years, if we were ever going to change our national gun laws to truly limit guns to hunting and to personal protection only in our homes, it would have been in 2012 after the Sandy Hook Elementary School shooting where an adult named Adam Lanza gathered an AR-15, two semi-automatic pistols, and a shotgun, as well as several hundred rounds of ammunition stored in high-capacity magazines, and drove his mother's car to Sandy Hook Elementary School, a public school in Newtown, Connecticut. This was a school for kindergarten through fourth grade students. And at that grade school, Lanza used his accumulated guns to murder 20 children and six adults. This event shed light on so many flaws in the gun sales and ownership and storing laws of our country. But even 20 small children being murdered at their own grade school wasn't enough to change our gun laws. That didn't do it. But our issues are bigger than the Rittenhouse trial, and bigger than the specifics of the Sandy Hook shooting, and bigger than AR-15s. To show this, consider October 1st, 2017, when 64-year-old Stephen Paddock opened fire on the crowd attending the Route 91 Harvest Music Festival on the Las Vegas Strip in Nevada, shooting from his 32nd floor suites in the Mandalay Bay Hotel. Paddock used bump stocks to rapidly fire more than 1,000 rounds, killing 60 people and wounding 411, with the ensuing panic bringing the number of injured up to 876 people. Finally, bump stocks were then banned by the U.S. Department of Justice in December of 2018, but the ban was reversed by the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals on March 25th. 2021. So I guess we need bump stocks, or we have a right to use them. As a teacher, it's my job to ask questions, to stay curious, to learn alongside my students. And as a teacher, I sometimes question this next wild fact. The United States has had 57 times 
as many school shootings as all other major industrialized nations combined. Again, I'm going to repeat that. The United States has had 57 times as many school shootings as all other major industrialized nations combined. School shootings plus in-home shootings plus accidental shootings plus suicide by firearm combine to make gun injuries the leading cause of death in the United States for high school students. But then it's also not just students. There's this fact. The city of Chicago, Illinois, had 4,033 shooting victims in 2020. And this, in the first six months of 2021, this year, in the first six months, Chicago police officers seized 5,300 illegal guns in the city. All of what I just told you is true, but according to Pew Research, only 48% of U.S. citizens believe that gun violence is a problem in our country. So this whole thing is cultural, systemic, so many more shootings and deaths and guns than other countries, yet not even half of our country thinks we have a problem. So violence pervades even our leisure. For a clear-cut example, the top-selling video game in the United States in 2021 is a first-person shooter game called Call of Duty Black Ops Cold War. That's a fact. But if I was to comment on the fact, say I was an opinionated person, say I was a person who had strong opinions, I would think about it and say something like this. First-person shooter games are a virtual space where soft boys who want to be tough can practice violence. But that last opinion would also remove me from my own culpability in this, our current U.S. gun culture. The full truth would be, I was taught to shoot by my grandfather who owned many guns. I grew up in a house with guns. And now I own guns. As an adult, I bought a pistol with no good intention behind the act. I already owned a shotgun and a rifle before I purchased that pistol. At the time of my last gun purchase, I hadn't hunted in years. Or going back a little bit, I was detained by a sheriff's deputy as a teenager at one of my high schools when I was in possession of a loaded 40 caliber handgun on school property. I was expelled from that school. But prior to my expulsion and having to forfeit the gun to the sheriff's department, I would have said without a doubt that the 40 caliber pistol was by far the coolest thing I owned. This is also true. The handgun was returned to its original owner. It had been stolen before it was given to me. 
and after being detained by the sheriff, he chose not to charge me, so I faced zero gun charges in that incident. This was in the rural south in the United States, and guns there were common as dirt. But the gun culture isn't just in the U.S. South, and it wasn't just something that existed a long time ago. Where I live in Eugene, Oregon, in the Pacific Northwest, there was a shooting on our block just three years ago. The shooter shot the victim to the left of our house, ran directly in front of our house, then shot the victim in the street again to the right of our house. My younger daughter was interviewed by police as a witness. Also, one night, when I felt that my family was in imminent danger, I loaded a gun, turned off all the lights in the house, and posted up with that gun in the living room to protect my family from an exterior threat. Fortunately, the person outside made a wise choice and didn't come any closer, and therefore I did not shoot him. But I was ready to shoot him if he tried to enter my house. This is what so many of us are ready to do in the United States. It's wild, but it's true. This man had a gun, so I had a gun. For me, the choice was automatic. Then again, these issues are much more than personal and much bigger than any individual instance. There are other very, very complicated and distressing issues related to this trial. But some people are asking what this trial has to do with race. And it's a good question. If the shooter and the slain are all white, what do these events and the aftermath say about race? To answer that, to make that absolutely clear, consider the following two paragraphs. Notice the similarities and the differences in number one and number two. Paragraph number one. The following details are not disputed. They were caught on video. In the upper Midwest, on November 22nd, 2014, Tamir E. Rice, a 12-year-old black boy, was holding a toy gun on a playground in Cleveland, Ohio, when he was shot and killed by Timothy Lohman, a 26-year-old white police officer. When Lohman arrived at the playground, he shot Rice before his patrol car came to a stop and in less than two seconds. Then Loman stood next to the boy's body for four minutes without even attempting first aid. Rice did not die that day. He died in the hospital the next day. But a grand jury chose not to indict Loman, so the police officer did not face any charges and there was never a trial. That's paragraph one. Paragraph number two. The following details are also not disputed. 
They're also clearly caught on video. Also in the upper Midwest, in Kenosha, Wisconsin, on August 25th, 2020, Kyle Rittenhouse, a 17-year-old white male, 15 minutes before fatally shooting two people, walked up to a police vehicle carrying a real assault rifle that was loaded with the cartridges he would later use to kill two people and shoot a third person. But when he walked up to that police vehicle with a real and loaded assault rifle, the police did not shoot Rittenhouse or apprehend him or detain him or even yell at him. But instead, the police officers offered him bottled water. I'll end this short podcast episode with the concluding paragraph of writer Dan Friedman's article for Mother Jones from this week. It was titled, Kyle Rittenhouse Didn't Break the Law. That's terrifying. The final paragraph reads, The Rittenhouse saga is a catalog of failures. The Kenosha police failed to detain Jacob Blake without shooting him seven times inches from his children. Then law enforcement failed to maintain order in the city. Rittenhouse's family and friends clearly failed him, leaving a lost, dangerous kid who failed to exercise common sense or basic morality. Prosecutors failed to mount a convincing case. But the biggest failure was that the events of the trial and the public perception of it will not deter the kind of conduct that led to it. It seems sure to cause more right-wing vigilantism, more armed confrontations, and more political violence in the streets. And my-